you know, all of our hotels stayed open, didn't have to shut any of them down. Uh, were those limited service? Because we didn't have restaurants. We didn't have all this overhead. We didn't have empty conference rooms. We, 100% of our hotel is for people to stay. Um, if you have a hotel that you want to invest in and they say, well, 60% or 50% of our revenue comes from hotels or conferences, I'd think twice about that. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Michael Stoller. Michael is a former commercial airline pilot, Navy veteran, and co-founder of Gateway Private Equity Group. Gateway is a real estate investment firm who whose portfolio has included hotels, multifamily, and residential properties. Between apartment complexes, houses, and hotel, Mike has operated over 1,300 units. Beyond being the co-founder of Gateway Private Equity Group, though, he is also host of the Richard Geek Podcast. I'm just going to stop right there and say, Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, Matt, I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. Mm. What's your favorite ice cream? You know, I'll never turn down butter pecan. Ah, yes. You are the first person to say that. And I'm on a huge butter pecan fan Mm. right now, kick right now, maybe because it's winter and it's just cold out, but I love it. Yeah. I'm originally from Indiana. So that was just kind of, uh, you know, pecan pie and butter pecan, you know, you just get the whole thing and we just love it. I love it. Do you have any um, favorite brands that produce the butter pecan or just anywhere you can find it? Yeah. You know, out here where I'm at, I'm out in Arizona. There's a, a small dairy um, out in the kind of the Northwest. I think they're in Portland. It's called Tillamook. And I, because it's fresh, I don't think it goes very far east. I know you can't get it back in Indiana because my, my father's upset because I, I introduced him to Tillamook and he's upset that he can't get it. It's just the, it's, think about the Hagen Dodge, just how creamy it is. Yeah, 100% cream. It's like that, but the ice cream, you get all the different flavors. and It's wonderful. I love it. Well, like they say, once you go tell a mook, you don't go back. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Well, we do hotel syndications, and we've been doing that for about uh, six years now. Um, got out of the multifamily, and, and we're just doing some ground-ups. And uh, doing some syndications, we're maybe doing some flips, but we've learned a lot. You know, the whole thing is we've learned a bunch during COVID on uh, what type of hotels survive, where they're at, what kind of drivers. So we're pretty confident that number one, the United States and, and the world's tired of COVID and they're ready to travel. And we're seeing a lot of growth. So we're excited for the next three to five years that there's going to be a lot of opportunities. Uh, to purchase and build hotels. Yeah, I agree with that. And you are the first person we've had on the show to talk about hotel syndication. So I'm super interested to dig in there. But before we get there, let's start at the beginning. Where did your real estate journey begin? Small town, Indiana. I grew up in a college town and just outside the college town. The college town was the big city of of 50,000. I lived in a town about 2,500. But uh, I probably like every single one of your listeners, rich dad, poor dad got a hold of me and uh, went to a seminar and 
It's like, wow, you know, it's like, this is it. You know, all the rich people are real estate people. And so I went back and I was like, oh, well, what am I going to do? Um, and I just happened to meet this guy in a uh, store and he was, he worked for this college and he was the uh, kind of in charge of all of their real estate, you know, their property their expansion and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. And he goes, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm this real estate opportunity, you know, entrepreneur and blah, 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 you know, fresh out of seminar land. And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for deals and he just blew my mind. He goes, well, you know what? We have some homes that uh, we don't want. Would you like them? And I said, well, I don't have any money. And he kind of laughed at me and he goes, well, what if we did seller financing? You don't need anything, you know, and, and uh, we'll go from there. And, and I'm like going, oh, my God, this seminar, you know, this, this stuff actually works. What, what am I going to do? Um, so that's how I got my first homes. We got eight units from a college. And what all of your listeners need to know is a lot of institutions, especially colleges, universities, they get bequeathed everything, um, you know, from through wills and through estates. So they get all these houses and, and all these properties. Well, they're not landlords. They don't want them. So they want to just sell them off. But what they're very good at doing is taking people's money. And they're very good at like seller financing. They know that stuff because that's what they do with the student loans. So you can get some really good deals. Now, Here's the bad part in seminar land. You know, this was, I call it PG pre-Google, pre-internet. I'm old. Um, so I couldn't type in how to become a landlord. Uh, what do you mean you have to give a notice if you're going to, you know, and I didn't know paperwork. I didn't know there's any paperwork. So I, I basically, you know, fixing things, how do I even find, I have to put an ad in the newspaper. You know, that's how old I am. Um, Buying those homes was easy. Being a landlord wasn't. I had no freaking clue what I was doing. So we actually did fail. You know, it's so like I didn't know how to do things. Um, so that was my first experience. You know, I know a lot of probably a lot of your uh, people that you do podcasts talk about all the great things, you know, but you, you can you can fail. And I failed miserably. But here's the thing is I knew that that was the future for me. And, and I loved it. And fast forward. 20 some years later and we're, we're doing okay. You're still doing it. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting that you say that you told that guy you're a real estate entrepreneur, because it just mm -hmm. seems like the more people I tell that I'm into the real estate game, the more they tell their friends that they know someone in the real estate game. And I get the secondary connections asking me about it. So mm -hmm. if you're interested in investing in real estate or you invest in real estate right now, I would tell everybody, you know, because you never know where that will lead. Um, the, the town that you're talking about, are you talking about Bloomingdale, Indiana? Bloomington? Yeah, Bloomington. Not Bloomington. No, that is where okay. I went to college. I went to Bobby Knight University, uh, Indiana University. No, that's that, that's a small town also. But no, this is uh, called Anderson, Indiana. Um, and it was Anderson College. It's just a very small Christian Church of God private kind of you know college. Um, I don't know how many even people are in there, you know, maybe yeah. 2000 people gotcha. go to the college or something it's small. So was the, I think you said it was an eight unit. Was that in Anderson or did they mm -hmm. have it from someone else that, um, did they just owned it somewhere else in the country? 
Yeah, so this was, it was when I mean eight units, it was a fourplex and four single family homes. It's eight units all together. And it was in Anderson, Indiana. And what I didn't know is that these houses were 50 years old and they needed a lot, lot of repairs. And, you know, I was just, yep, okay, you know, yeah. X amount of, yep, here we go. Yep, I'm buying them. You know, I'm, I'm a real estate entrepreneur. You know, and then I opened them up and I'm like, oh my God, what in the <laughs> world did I just do? You know, and, and, and we didn't have any money. We were newly married and just getting started. I was like, oh my gosh, how much credit's on our credit card, you know? Um, so it was just, you, the whole thing that I can really tell your listeners is make sure you get a mentor. Everyone wants you just jump in, but make sure you kind of know what you're doing, you know, yep. listen to this podcast, listen to all the different podcasts and get books and get a mentor so that you don't make our mistakes. That's all right. Did you continue to buy properties that were given to them through and uh, through wills and things like that? Or did you continue down that journey of buying no, colleges? No, you know, that was such a painful experience and it about bankrupt us because we just, we had so much money. We didn't make any money. We had so much money on credit cards because I, I was fixing, I was banging on roofs and I was fixing plumbing and, and pretending to know what, what I was doing. And uh, it, it almost bankrupted us um, so much that we actually had to sell our, sell our house. Oh, wow. Move in. I mean, it was, we were in debt because I just kept, this is going to be it. This is going to be it. And I could just kept putting money. And finally it was, uh, it, it, we had to move in with her parents. It was a very humbling time. And I stopped doing real estate for a while. I actually became an airline pilot. Um, and then once I became an airline pilot, I was like, okay, I'm making money. And what am I going to do with my, um, you know, the, the money that I have? So that's when I got back into real estate. Uh, but there was, a, there was a small gap there um, where it's just stung too much, you know. Uh, but what I did and what your, your listeners can do before I became that airline pilot, you know, that was my childhood dream. So I just really wanted to do it. But what I did is how can I learn how to do what I failed at? So. I took a job in Indianapolis with a very large property management group. And that's how I learned how to become a landlord. And, you know, I took some paperwork and, you know, it's like, Oh, this is what those forms are. You know, and I learned how to evict people, learn how to do all this sort of stuff. But, you know, that's what I did. I actually quit my job at, that I had at the time and said, you know what, I'm going to work for the property management group and learn how to do it. That was yep. my mentor. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of processes, a lot of laws, a lot of uh, T's and C's that you have to follow mm -hmm. if you're a landlord. And I am a big proponent of, especially if you have a W-2 that you're doing full time to just hire out a property manager, because I remember I was trying to evict someone from um, one of the units I had that hadn't paid in four months. And they said, if you take a lesser payment in Davidson County in Nashville, where oh, I, live, if you I know it's take a, a lesser payment, then you are renegotiating right. the lease. So if, if you take $100 and the rent is $1,500, you essentially have renegotiated that lease and the tenant can do $100 moving forward. So um, I don't know if, the, if that's where you thought I was going to go with that, but there's a lot of different things. When, when, that, when somebody told me that, I was like, holy smokes, I had no idea about that. Well, what in, in Arizona, what that is, is let's say the rent's $1,500 and they give me $1,000. I've basically said, and they're only like 
a month or two months behind. What I've said is I'll accept a thousand in lieu of your all of your late payments. So then I'd have to wait another 30 days, but the rent stays the same. But what I did is just said that, okay, we'll now compromise and I'm accepting a lesser amount for the money's due. And then I'd yeah. have to wait another 30 days to evict them if they still don't pay, but it, it resets the time because I've accepted payment. It's, it's on all or nothing. Yep. And, yep. and if and, people send me a check, I mail it back to them. Yep. And somebody on, on here might be listening and saying, okay, well, now I know to avoid that. So I feel comfortable being a landlord, but there's something else out there that you probably there's don't homes. know about. And property yeah. managers get paid a fee, not just to collect checks, but to know those kinds of ins and outs and the laws, et cetera. So um, one, one more question about the colleges and people uh, mm -hmm. bequeathing their property and jewelry and cars and things like that to them is, if I, that sounds like a really interesting strategy. And before I did some research on you, I, I had no idea that that was a strategy who, if I live in a college town or if I live in a big college town, um, how would I go about finding out who at the university is in charge of that? Is there a specific title I would be looking for or how did, what was this guy's title or what was his deal? Yeah. Yeah. The, t the titles might change, but there's going to be somebody in the admin office that's just in charge of it might be someone in the tax department might be someone in, but they're in charge of just the land that the college sits on or maybe empty lots where there's future growth, but they're in charge of uh, the buildings, the properties. They probably, you know, make sure the taxes are paid. They make sure that all the stuff gets done as far as uh, just anything, but, you know, look for it. It could be a director of real estate, land management, you know, there's probably different ones, whatever they want to call them, but find out, you just go into the admin office and say, Hey, you know, I'd like to talk to whoever's in charge of the real estate here, you know, the land and the buildings and go from there. Yeah. Genius strategy. I want to touch on one more thing and then we'll kind of continue down your journey here. But uh, you mentioned that you went and became a, a airplane pilot because then you had some steady income. And, and I think people kind of miss that when they hear about real estate investing is, Hey, I'm going to go be this big real estate investor. And that's great, but you don't get paid to do the transaction when you're buying. You either have to, you only get paid on the transaction when you sell. So you're not going to have that steady income stream unless you already have a portfolio that's giving you that. So as you're building this up along the way, you're pinching pennies together to make yeah. that happen. So can you talk to us about, is that kind of why you went to go be a, a pilot or how your mindset shifted when you became a pilot and started having that income coming in and, and then decided to pursue down the real estate journey? Yeah. You know, well, I became an airline pilot because I, mean, I, I, got, I, had, I had my pilot license when I was 17. That's I originally went to college for it and didn't have the money. You know, those, those licenses are expensive, but um, I did because it was a dream and, and I was just so distraught over, you know, it's like, oh man, I just need to put this on hold, but I can't be in a nine to five job or else I'll go postal because it's just not my personality. Um, so I decided to pursue the airline pilot and, and what that allowed me to do. And I should, I hear a lot of the newbies, if, if, if I use that term, say, yeah, I'm going to quit my job and go full-time and real estate uh, investing. And I'm like, don't, no, no, don't ever do that. Um, number one is the banks like W-2s. Okay. Get a job, have a steady income, sock some money away so you can get the down payment. 
and then you have the W-2 because there you have some steady income that the banks like, and now you can get a loan for your first fix and flip or your first single family rental. Um, number two, it's nice to have health benefits. If you have that type of a W-2, you know, uh, company that you work for. So now if you get sick or if you, you know, fall through a roof as you're trying to fix something, which I almost did, um, you have health, you know, insurance. So that was the thing that really kept us. And what I did is I just socked so much away until I came up with the down payment and then went around and, when the time was come, I was healed from all my anxiety and all that sort of stuff. Because, you know, what I did is I just, now that Google came along, I just started listening and reading books and just learning. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Now that I'm educated, now that I went to that property management company and I know what I'm doing, uh, I can make a better decision going forward. And so that's when I jumped in and things took off from there. Yep. Yep. I agree with a lot of what you just said there. I mean, the benefits, the steady income, the ability to capture, to get loans with a W-2 income, mm -hmm. your, your ability to fit in that bank's box is a lot different. Mm -hmm. um, unless you're an accredited investor already because of other investment incomes and things like that, where you can start doing interesting things. It's always good to kind of hang on to that W-2 while you're, while you're building the portfolio. Um, so I want to jump into like what happened next. So you're, you, you worked at the property management company, you were a pilot, you had a bad first experience with real estate. What was the, what did you get involved in real estate after that? Yeah. So then we moved out to Arizona. I did some flight training out in Arizona. I was like, going, you know, this weather is a lot better than Indiana. And my wife was able to transfer with her job. And we've been in Arizona ever since. Plex or the eight plex it was until I had a 28 plex that I was saving money for another one is when I decided that I could quit and do it full time. My wife still had the W-2. So we had that situation and I didn't. And, but here, you know, the thing is, is I couldn't return to, to the flying cause it's just my, my, I tore my forearm muscle. So it was just really um, hard to fly, but that was when we decided and that's when everything really took off really good. I was able to concentrate on that full time. It must've been a hell of a storm. <laughs> yeah, it was a hell of a storm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when ATC says, well, you know, you guys want to give it a shot, you know, you're first in line, you know, holding and we don't see any lightning, but the, the wind's pretty bad. And I'm like, yeah, we'll give it a shot. Cause you don't want to divert anywhere and got down. And, and when you get kicked around so bad that the autopilot actually fails, Whoa. When it says like, I have no idea what the airplane's doing, you do it. And I'm like, I don't want to do it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you had to, and it, it, it bucked so hard. It, it buckled my forearm. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so you had the 28, you had a couple of different ones. Did you ever get into the larger multifamilies, like hundred units plus or mm -hmm. anything like that? They were all the nope. smaller 50, 50 was the largest. And were you managing those all yourself too? I did at that time. I was, I took all my knowledge and on the, uh, the, on the 28s from 28 on up, I had, uh, onsite managers. Um, and so that, that was, and, uh, part-time maintenance guys, you know, you just kind of give them some rent credit and you know, things like that. And, um, so it was a lot easier. 
Um, once you you do that, you know the the four seven eights and and the the smaller ones, all those that we had, it's that's really hard to do on your on your own just because there's just too much going on. Um, it's actually the the bigger ones. It, you, it actually gets a little bit easier once you can afford an on site because you don't have to be there every day and you're not doing any uh, kicking out and yelling and and all the fun stuff that you have to do. Yeah. So you were able to afford an on site at 28 units. Yeah, but you know, you you give them free rent and a couple bucks an hour. You know, you just give them. It, you do what you can. You know, you're not giving them a full salary. So you find someone, Hey, you want free rent. All right. You're the person that gets yelled at. You're the first line of defense. And, and here's the vendors that you call if something goes wrong and, and, you know, they're willing to do that for, you know, a small amount per year, plus a, plus a free rent. People are willing yeah. to do that. Got it. Well, now I want to get into the kind of juicy stuff and the, the conversation I'm super interested in having, and that's really around the hotels. So when did you, when did you first get involved in uh, hotel investing? Uh, seven years ago. I, uh, and that's when the cap rates were starting to get really bad in multifamily. And I actually had this one, one of the 50 units and this group out of Iowa or Idaho, one of, one of those two, one of the eyes, um, they unsolicited wanted to buy my, th this complex. And I was like, no, I mean, I was actually making close. I was bringing in a hundred thousand dollars on it. You know, I mean, rents were really high and it was a really great place. And I was starting to golf. I was like, Oh man, I'm starting to live the life. Um, but they kept coming back and kept coming back. And, and then finally I, I was like, I'm a fool if I don't sell this to them. Um, and I made, I had that property 10 months and made eight, uh, like 860,000. Oh, and I was like, I had, I had to take it, you know, but then I was like going, now what, you know, am I going to buy another multifamily for a four cap? Um, I should have, because now they're three caps and I could have made, you know, <laughs> you just never know. But, um, but it, you know, in the mentoring and, and networking and, and again, people, I couldn't have done anything that I did without networking and, and the mentors. So it's all that, all the people that, you know, and I knew this guy it was in hotels for 15, some years at the time. And I started talking to him and I was like, going, Hey, what's it like being in the hotels? You know, I don't know anything about it. And by the way, I have some money. Can you buy me a hotel? And what we, what I did is this is another tidbit for your uh, listeners. Don't ever get into an asset class unless you know what you're doing. Okay. Uh, don't accept, don't think that you can jump from a fourplex to a 50 plex. You know, I mean, it's like, it, it's just really a big or jump from multifamily to hotels. What I did with this guy was I want you to find me a property and I want you to run it. Would you be willing to, be the property manager. And uh, if you teach me everything that you know, I'll give you a cut of the profits. And he said, yes. And that was my first hotel deal. And uh, he did. He, I mean, I, now I know 
you know, enough to get myself in trouble with the hotels. So that was my journey into the first hotel. And, and I only do the franchise hotels and, and um, that's it. That was, that's how I got started. So I've heard you talk about different levels of hotel and I've spent a lot of times in hotels for my W2. I think in 2019, <laughs> I spent 200 nights in a hotel. So I'm very familiar with the different tiers of them, but from an investment standpoint, I've heard you talk about the different tiers. Could you run our listeners <laughs> through the different tiers of hotels? Yeah. You know, there's, you know, class one, two, three, four and, and, and on up, but when, when you look at a class two, just think, don't look at it as like, oh my God, this is like the second level from the bad, you know, don't think of it as like a, a, a C minus, you know, multifamily or D, uh, but there's different tiers. And basically what you get into is you have your economies and your economies are like the motel sixes and things like that. Then you have, then you go up into like mid scale, mid scale might be like a quality in from choice. Uh, upper mid scale. Now you're getting into um, like a country inn and suites or a Hampton inn and suites, you know, that's still mid level, but they're upper mid scale. And then you get into the full scale and there's kind of level in between that lower upper mid scale, which is kind of the lower full scale, which is maybe your double trees. And they'll have maybe a bar and some conference rooms. Then you go into the full scales which may have a couple of restaurants and a bar, um, a lot of conference areas, big lobby, uh, one or two pools, fitness. You know, it's just more. And then you get into more of the luxury, and then you have boutiques, um, which are independents that tag themselves onto franchises. So you have this, like in Sedona, Arizona, you may have this twenty or thirty or forty room hotel, which is just fantastic just you know uh, looks super but they'll attach themselves to marriott and become what's called an autograph collection so there's all of those types and then you have your big resorts that that everyone knows about do you primarily focus on one of those tiers over the other mm -hmm. yes and I'm, I'm glad i did because those are the ones that survived during covid so we i i like uh mid-scale and upper mid-scale and then there's another tag it's called limited service um which means that they're really nice hotels, you know, quality ends, country and suites, um, Winmarks, you know, they're uh, Hampton Inn and suites. But what, what they are is you get the free breakfast, the free internet, and then you go. Most of the people aren't staying for a very long time in our hotels. It's not a destination hotel unless you're just, you, you want to save money. Um, no restaurants, no bars, so we don't have to, no conference rooms, um, just your transient hotels. And those actually did very, very well during COVID, so we're, we're glad. Um, we might get into something like uh, uh, we're, we're building a couple and we're looking at doing an upper mid-scale, which might just have like a bar in it. So I can actually sit at the bar, at my bar and in a hotel and, you know, and have a drink at, at the bar in my hotel. You know, I've always wanted to do that, but we'll never get into the full, the full scale or, or larger because um, I, if, if, and when another COVID or something like that happens, those are the ones that really struggled. Yeah. Um, I love the idea of having a drink and just telling the bartender it's on the owner. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
Um, yeah, I've heard Grant Cardone talk about that with like multifamily. And when I was first getting exposed to real estate as an asset class, he talked about like, you've got your D level and those are really government subsidized housings and things like that. You've got your A class, which is like, hey, I just got my fancy new job and I'm spending, I'm in debt up to my ears, but I want to live in the brand new, nicest amenity spots. And he talked about like, he really wanted to focus on the 800 to $1,200 rent market. Mm -hmm. And uh, 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 and really across the country, if you look at it, 800 to 1200 is affordable. And it's the folks that get knocked down from the luxury when they lose their job, they get an unexpected medical bill, their dog has to go to the vet or something like that. And he's like, those folks don't want to go all the way down to the subsidized housing. They always want a clean place, a nice place, an updated place, um, but they need affordable rent. And it almost sounds like that's kind of mm -hmm. the market you're focused on with hotels. Is that a good kind of analogy? It is. It is. You know, I always liked the, you know, the B minus C plus apartments. I call those the lunch pail Joe apartments. You know, the guy's taking his lunch, his lunch pail to job. These are your blue collar workers, your teachers, electricians, your plumbers, your, your trademen, your, you know, truck drivers. Um, and those are the type of hotels that we concentrate on. These are the traveling nurses. These are the, uh, they're just the, the mid-scale salesmen they're coming in and want to uh, need a place to stay. Uh, it, it's very clean, but it's, yeah, $80, $140, you know, and, and they just kind of range right there. That is an exact. And those are the type of people, um, it, what really helped us during COVID is, you know, our hotels that had truck driver parking. Yeah, really, yep. really helped. You mentioned the C word, so I'll bring it up. Uh, during COVID, I, I know that a lot of folks talked about uh, hotel asset class just getting demolished. But to your point, truck drivers were moving gear across this country. They were the backbone of our economy for for a lot of uh, a lot of 2020 and still to this day and focusing on that group. Um, but any other things that you saw during 2020 or 2021 on in this asset class that maybe our listeners could pull out just in case there's another uh, traumatic mm -hmm. event that shocks the economy like that again? Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, so the hotels that did good, you know, all of our hotels stayed open, didn't have to, to shut any of them down. Uh, were those limited service? Because we didn't have restaurants. We didn't have all this overhead. We didn't have empty conference rooms. We, we 100% of our hotel is for people to stay. Um, if you have a hotel that you want to invest in and they say, well, 60% or 50% of our revenue comes from hotels or conferences, I'd think twice about that. Because if those go away, now you're sitting with half of half of half of the half of the revenue that you need um extended stay also did very well you know those those people that uh, uh during covid the nurses and doctors were afraid and we had this at a lot some of our hotels they're afraid to go home because they're on the front lines so they're staying in those type of hotels or extended stay hotels um people isolated in, in some of those those hotels um the other thing that we learned, and that's all I did during COVID was learn. I didn't sit on my butt and just wallow and, oh, you know, woe was me. I'm like, okay, this is going to happen. I My first um, line of duty is to our investors. I, I need to sit down and learn. And what I found out is pre-COVID, you could go and say, man, if I had a hotel next to a university, I'd, I'm set. 
until no one's going to school and no one's visiting the universities, right? And no one ever thought that that would ever happen. So what we call a term that we use in, in hotels is drivers. What is driving someone to that hotel? And we now look instead of just one driver, like, well, it's next to university or it's next to the ski slope or it's next to the concert hall. Um, that's the only reason why people go there. So now we need several of them. And we love, love, love the ones that are off of highways, interstate highways. Um, you get that transient uh, and, and also walk-in traffic, uh, truck driver parking. You know, the ones that we're going to build will have truck driver parking. I mean, that is just an essential. Um, and then it's going to have like one other type of driver. So it's going to be um, like during COVID, we, we like it to be just outside of a major metro. People during COVID didn't want to go into the big cities where there's millions of people um, that could potentially give them COVID, right? So they could stay at a quality inn or a comfort inn 20 minutes outside of the major metro. It's the same exact building. It looks exactly the same. It's cheaper, but they feel a lot more comfortable because it's in a town of 5,000 or 10,000 and it's, it has a lot of land around it. So they, so that's another thing is being outside. Um, and if you're long a big interstate highway like that, people that are tired, they don't, man, do I really want to, I'm traveling from El Paso, Texas on into LA and do I really want to get into Phoenix? You know what? I'll stop, I'll stop in the small town just south of Phoenix, you know, and, and rest. So we're, we're looking at those different types of, of ideas that, that we learned. Yeah. It's funny. As you were saying that, um, I'm in Nashville, Nashville has 40 running east to west and 65 going north and south. And if you've spent yeah. any time driving, you know, that, you always want to get through the city so that when you start off in the morning, you're not after finding that morning traffic. And now that I think about it, there's plenty of places along those that are interesting, um, specifically because you're catering towards, you know, truck drivers that want a place to park, want a comfortable place, want free breakfast, want to be able to log on to Wi-Fi, but aren't looking for all those amenities. And when you were talking about all those amenities of the nicer hotels, the thing I, that went directly to my mind is high ticket means that there's high overhead. And that can be for selling conference rooms. That could be for selling amenities at properties. That's also anything you're trying to sell. Fancy jewelry, mm -hmm. that's high ticket. Fancy jewelry requires a fancy touch to it. Go buy jewelry at Tiffany's versus your at local Target, and you'll see the mm -hmm. two different experiences there, right? Um, but I, I don't feel like we can exit the conversation about hotels without talking about Airbnb and mm -hmm. the DRBO and just that market in general. How are you seeing that impact? your business and what do you see in the future there? Yeah, it's probably the number one question I get from everyone, you know, because short-term rentals are it, you know, it's kind of the hot spot. Um, it does not affect any of my hotels uh, because what kind of hotels do I have? That limited service, mid-scale, upper mid-scale type of hotel. Um, people that stay at my hotel are business people or families or transient type of travel. Um, 
the people that, you know, if you can imagine, I have a group of five people coming in for business to stay in my hotel. You're not going to have two women and two men rent a four bedroom house and stay in an Airbnb that are coming in for business. You know, there's like the potential for too many bad things to happen uh, as far as liability for the company. Uh, Airbnbs are good for like, there's four guys coming into Scottsdale to go golf. Uh, they're going to do the Airbnb. They're not going to stay or even consider staying in mine. Uh, so the Airbnbs are more of, put more pressure on the full service to the resorts. Okay. The people that are going to spend that type of money for the Airbnbs are going to stay in the big resorts or the nice, the really nice high end, those types of uh hotel. So we don't get affected at all. It's, it's, it's a completely different crowd. Yeah. I mean, that's a brilliant answer because as I spend time on the road, I've never stayed at an Airbnb for business. I've only right. stayed when I'm with friends or uh, traveling with a group. And really there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I do like free Wi-Fi, free breakfast. Uh, I've stayed at an Airbnb that was not very clean before um, trying to cheap it out. And that did not work for me just staying by myself. And also, I mean, the rewards points and the loyalty points are one of the biggest benefits of my business travel, because when I do that, I can collect those points. And then I, when I, it's time to go take a vacation, can basically have my hotel paid for, which is a huge perk of mine that I don't get for Airbnb. Um, and I, I'll just kind of talk about my dad, for instance, owns a, a business where he hires out contractors to go build things, steel buildings specifically. And it's the same thing. Like he's looking for your quality ends, your comfort ends, mm -hmm. your holiday ends, things like that. And he uses those points so that when um, he travels personally or when he needs a room in a very expensive market for his guys, he can go subsidize that and make more profit on the deal. So I, I think that's interesting um, or a brilliant answer. One of the things I, I want to ask before we leave this conversation too is the operations of it. So can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the operations of a hotel and what you're seeing there versus traditional multifamily or small single family? Yeah, it's, it's a big jump. Um, you know, multifamily is real estate and it's kind of the top tier that everyone thinks of when you, I'm going to invest in real estate, it's single family, then multifamily. Um, hotels are a business. And through the government, it's considered a business. So when I say that I own a hotel, the IRS and the government does not see me as owning real estate. I, I own the land, but I have a business that sits on top of it. And that was, is one of the biggest things that, that helped us survive during COVID is because I own a small business. I was able to get the EIDL disaster loans. I was able to get the PPP the payroll protection loans. I was able to get all these state, local, and government grants that are for helping small businesses survive during COVID. Multifamily can't do that. The operations side, remember, you know, I have 12 to 20 employees. I have 20 to 30, sometimes 40 different vendors that I'm paying. Uh, you have franchise requirements. So I'm if we, if we have a Radisson or a Choice Hotel or a Wyndham, we have those requirements that we have to do. And every five five years or so, we still have to start replacing something. You know, so it's the operations are you have to turn the real estate off because there's zero percent of your brain power 
when you go into hotels that's dealing with real estate. Um, it's 100% running a business. And, you know, another thing that I love about hotels and the reason why I will, will stick with hotels is when something comes into town, um, I get to change my, what I call rent. I get to change those on a daily basis. So when you're at $1,500 a month times a hundred units and I'm at $150 a night, every night for a hundred units, but sometimes it's 250 a night. Sometimes it's 60 a night. So I can play <laughs> you know, with my rents every day. So that's another thing that we do. Uh, but operationally it's, it, there's nothing like multifamily. It's, it's completely different. Yeah. I, I like that idea of quote unquote, changing the rent every night. Um, because I think as we move into this, um, ambiguous world, then the, one of the things that you could do to protect yourself from a risk management standpoint is to be able to be flexible and mm -hmm. changing your rent and being able to uh, have people come in, different people come in is an ability to remain agile and flexible. So that's going to be a huge advantage to that. Mm -hmm. um, this is a fantastic conversation, but I want to be cognizant of your time and switch us now to the last round here. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is something that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Boy, my favorite book is that I just read is, um, I think it's called Secrets of the Rich. Yeah. I listened to that guy on a podcast recently. Was it oh, did good? you? Yeah. It's really good. Um, what it, here's, here's the difference is I can be rich as far as having a lot of money, but I can also have a lot of debt and I can't afford to even furnish half the rooms in my mansion. Right. Or you could be a school teacher that makes $50,000 a year has no debt and they actually have more money in the bank than the multimillionaire. So this book teaches you how to balance that out of having no debt, no personal debt. And do you really need that $100,000, $200,000 car, or do you do this? And if you want something like this, well, you know what? Can you lease it through the business? You know, so it's, it taught me how to actually be wealthy. Yep. Yep. I love that. Um, I, I can't devour enough of that content because it's more than just a dollar amount. It's the freedom. It's the flexibility. It's if you want something, how do you pay for it? Not just can yeah. you pay for it? That is, that is true freedom. Yep. is when you do not have debt, when you actually go somewhere and say, you know, I don't have to worry about money and you can make 20,000 a year and have that, or you can make the millions. I'd rather have make the millions and feel that way. You know? Yep. yep. Um, our second one is I believe the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have every day and the things that you mm -hmm. do every single day. What are some of the things that you do every day? Yeah. One of the things I, I've, I've kind of talked about mentorships and coaching and things like that here. Uh, so I've been in some several coaching um, programs and what they teach is every morning or every day I have what's called a default calendar. Okay. That you do not stray from. Cause here's the thing is prior to me having that, I could sit there on social media. And it's like, Oh my God, it's already nine 30 here. You know, here we go. Um, 
I only check my emails a certain time of day. I only do these podcasts certain blocks of the day. Um, I don't get on social media. If I get on LinkedIn, it's I actually have it scheduled. This is a half hour that I'm on LinkedIn and I can do all of my stuff. So when you do that, and and ladies and gentlemen, when you start becoming a true entrepreneur and you're working from home or you you don't have the boss over your head, it's very, very important that you have that type of routine that you would have if you had like a regular nine to five job. Yep. Yep. I don't know if you've ever read the book Traction, but essentially he talks about that as placing rocks in your days, weeks, quarters, months, years, et cetera. And very, very similar. So I like that. Um, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, there's a sign that I have over my office that I re- that I look at every day. Uh, I had one of my mentors say, why do you want to be an entrepreneur? Why do you want to get into real estate? And I said, you know, to be rich, you know, I want money. And he's like a wrong answer. Um, if you do all these other things, then the money will come. You don't ever want to do something because I want to get rich. Um, so he made me think about it. And the best advice and the thing that I came up with and that I have on my wall is build a life that you don't need a vacation from. And that's why I do this. And that's a tough one to top right there. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, can you imagine, man? You know, I wake up in the morning. It's like, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't mind going to work every day. Yep. Yep. I love it. Um, our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Oh man, there's so many things. Um, I'm not going to say, is, is my wife, you know, where she, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> I should say, you know, well, the day I got married, um, you know, you could say a lot of things, you know, one thing that I was extremely proud of is the day I was, I went from nothing and got hired on as, as an airline pilot. You know, I, I didn't have any schooling for it. I went to the local airports and just got all the certificates and flew around. And, and I was like, you know, am I ever going to do this? But man, actually walking down that jetway with the, that little suit on pilot suit, you know, that was, you know, that was a, a pretty fun day for me. Uh, and also the day I graduated from uh, boot camp was one of the proudest moments um, of, of my life, you know, just, okay, I'm a soldier, you know, here we go. Um, so those are the two big ones. Um, everything else is just, it's fun. You know, you could say, well, buying my first multifamily, buying my first hotel, buying my first fancy car, you know, it's, yeah, those aren't proud moments. That's all materialistic stuff. But Yep. Yep. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the guys that I think would just, I'd love to pull his ear for a while is, because I've, I've actually sat down at dinner with some pretty powerful guys um, and extremely interesting conversations. Uh, one of the, my favorite ones was uh, John Chambers. He was uh, mm-hmm. CEO and board of, of Cisco Systems. I've had dinner with him and golfed with him a couple of times. And man, can he, he can tell you stuff from, Saudi Arabia to the, the White House and all sorts of stuff. But 
wouldn't it be fun? Just can you imagine sitting down for an hour with Elon Musk? <laughs> you know, he is yeah. the number one person so far that's been named. I just think you just don't know where the conversation would go. You know, where, where his genius or insanity would, you know, if he, it's just, I, I own a Tesla, you know, I absolutely love it. But just to get into his brilliance, and if you could even hang with him, I think that would just be, very, and he, you know, he'd eat the ice cream too. <laughs> yeah, I, I listen to my podcast and YouTubes and things like that on 2X. He's one where I have to slow it down because he's so far ahead of what I'm thinking about that I'm having to connect the dots and uh, my brain does not work as fast as his. So it's very interesting oh. that you say that because he is the number one person that's been mm -hmm. said so far and uh, definitely an icon of our time, I would say. Yeah. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you, hotel syndications, or what you all are doing over at Gateway, where's the best place we could point them? Yeah, uh, Gateway PE is in privateequity.com is, is the website, gatewaype.com. You can find me on LinkedIn under Michael Stoller, S-T-O-H-L-E-R. Perfect. And he will check that once a day in his allotted time <laughs> yeah, that's and get right. back to you. <laughs> well, Michael, fantastic conversation. We didn't even talk about the virtual assistants and, and what right. you're doing over there. So I would love to have you back on soon to talk about that. Um, but thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.